Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Lewis Busby was a self-proclaimed average student, one whose parents did not go to college. After the death of his father, he began to spiral downward, but was saved from failing high school by attentive teachers, teachers who had ample resources thanks to a well-funded California school system. Now schools have been devastated by funding cuts, and Busby wonders in his new book, Blackboard, A Personal History of the Classroom, if it's still possible to save at-risk students when, he says, the public will to fund public education remains pallid, timid, hypocritical. Busby offers insight not only as a student, but also as a teacher and a father, contrasting his daughter's experiences with his own. And in the book's epilogue, he offers a seven-point immodest proposal to save our schools. Louis Busby is author of The Yellow-Lighted Bookshop. After the Gold Rush and Fliegelman's Desire, as well as three novels for younger readers. Steinbeck's Ghost, The Haunting of Charles Dickens, and Bridge of Time. He lives in San Francisco with his wife and daughter. Louis Busby, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you, Tom? Uh, doing very well. Appreciate you uh, being with us. That's my pleasure. Thank you. I note that um, you you list in your biography uh, <clears throat> some, uh, some various jobs. You've been, in order, you say, a dishwasher, a bookseller, a publisher, a caterer, bartender, and teacher of writing. It's a, a broad spectrum. Well, I think every writer should have a, a, a nice uh, um, uh, sort of disreputable resume, and probably the most disreputable portion of that resume would be publisher. Um, uh, bartending is at least an, an <laughs> honest job. <laughs> that, that's right. Point. That's right. <laughs> um, I, and so uh, what you're doing here is you're looking back over your biography, contrasting that with your daughter's. You also have, have been in many classrooms as a teacher, as a student, and as a writer of children's books. That, that gets you into, into classrooms as well. Yeah, it's one of the great things about writing for kids is that you get to go and um, actually just spend a day in a classroom. Uh, of course, as a parent, I've spent time in classrooms, but I've had a much better view of the classroom I think what happens in a classroom, what's possible in a classroom, from being in a classroom that was not my daughter's, uh, where I'm worried about her and concerned about her and what's happening with her. Um, I always want to encourage um, any parent, any citizen to spend more time in schools, but not necessarily just their own school, not necessarily just their own child's classroom, but to actually just be in a classroom, watch kids and teachers at work and see what happens there, see what see what goes right and see what goes wrong, not for any particular purpose except to be more informed about what happens in, in, in the classroom these days. And you've noticed changes from the time you went to school and, uh, and, and now, and not changes for the better. Um, no, not changes for the better, not at all. Um, I think the, the overriding issues for me happen to be, and I'm talking about public schools here, um, uh, class size um, and um, the the state of of the physical state of many of our schools and classrooms um, for, when it comes to class size I have a very good friend um, and uh, poet um, friend Thomas Seaton who's a wonderful highly acclaimed teacher in an East Bay near San Francisco um, high school he teaches English honors and AP English and he has 39 to 40 kids um, hmm. in his classes, and he has five of those classes a day. Not only does it make his life as a teacher um, really untenable um, in many ways, but it makes the classroom experience completely different. So imagine a classroom with 40 people in it, 
and then cut that in half and imagine a classroom with 20 people in it, how much more work can be done, uh, how much more focus can be achieved. Um, and, then I, and then I also think it's just a, a simple matter of you wanting uh, your child's school or us wanting our child children's schools to be inviting places, uh, places that you would want to go every single day. When my daughter uh, and my wife and I went through the high school application process um, here in San Francisco, we thought at one point we, she had been going to private schools, independent schools, and we thought at one point she might go into a public school. And so we got lucky. We won a lottery, which I, that, even just that notion seems sort of appalling. We would have to win a lottery to go to one of the better college track public schools in San Francisco, we went and toured it, and we all came out extremely depressed, um, simply because of the physical state of the school. Um, dingy, half of the classrooms were in the basement, um, sort of mold on the walls, broken down furniture, broken down desks, um, an unappealing exterior. And I don't want necessarily require every school to be a resort, but it needs to be an inviting place because this is where our children spend so much of their lives. And part of what I wanted to do in the book was to, to, to get back and remind myself of how long a student's day is and how much happens there. I wonder if I could have you read uh, just a, a, most of a page of, uh, from the book. Uh, starting at the very end of uh, page 8, my concern for California's public schools, and then ending with School Saved My Life. Okay. Uh, on, on page 9, this, this sort of set, sets the, the stakes. As you look back, school was, was uh, very, very important for you. Sure. Uh, so here we go. This is page 8. My concern for public schools, while at root civic-minded, arises from my own history there, a concern that is about more than test scores and global workplace competition. I was the first person from my working class family to go to college, an opportunity made possible by the largesse and excellence of California's public schools, and that opportunity shaped my life in profound and enduring ways, offering me a future that was intellectually, imaginatively, democratically, and yes, economically richer than I would have found otherwise. More importantly, while I was benefiting from this public bounty, schools practically saved my life in a very personal way. I'm sure this claim sounds overdramatic, but it's hard for me to see it in any other terms. After the sudden death of my father when I was in junior high school, my life, both in school and out of it, took a decidedly troubling turn, and there were several years when I was on the verge of slipping through the cracks of not living up to my potential. I can only imagine how thin my life would have been, how limited my choices if I had continued on that path. My schools, their teachers, administrators, and the very structures those schools offered steered me to a course that made it possible for me to rescue myself. Yes, school saved my life. You go on later in the book to, uh, to talk about how the very structure of, of the schools and, and the fact that uh, teachers could do one-on-one time 
that was happily commonplace. In a way, it's not today. It's the very structure of the school that, that made it so that you could be saved. Well, one of the great things about schools, the way we have it set up with the system and the public system in the U.S., and normally this is the way it works, is in elementary school and lower school, you're in one classroom for an entire day with a teacher. As you, as you get older and become more courageous, if you were, or sometimes foolhardy, going out into the world and having a bigger radius in the world, then we start to spend time with individual teachers um, six, seven, eight a day. Um, you have your history teacher and your English teacher and your French teacher. This allows the student to focus really deeply on a subject, but it also affords, when possible, this one-on-one -on -one time where you and a teacher are really diving together into a subject um, with, with greater depth. And it allows then for the student to, again, when everything works right, it allows the student to, um, to find a mentor, someone who can guide you, not just in the conjugation of the, you know, poo perfect verbs in French, but um, how to navigate whatever concerns um, are troubling you. I wonder, let's skip ahead to high school to talk, talk a bit about this, your, your crisis and, and uh, the teachers you found, especially uh, Miss G, the, the French teacher. Yeah, Sally you, Calbray. You, you found a, a mentor there. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the lovely things about um, this particular setup was that um, Mademoiselle G, we had to call her, um, was uh, the only French teacher at the school, and so she taught French as French one through four. And for some weird reason, living in California, when it would have been much more to my advantage economically, say, to have taken Spanish or even Chinese, I decided that French... Uh, which would do me no good in life, was a language that I wanted to take. And so I studied with Sally for four years, and over those four years, we became increasingly close as mentor and student. And so she um, had a wonderful system where, as, as, as a French student progressed through the levels, then that student would teach the younger students, or the 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 less advanced students. So when I was in French 2, I would teach a French 1 student. When I was in French 3, I would teach a French 2, etc. And we would all do that. And this instills um, uh, a new sort of um, confidence in a student um, because when you teach something to somebody, you have to know what it is that you're teaching. You have to at least to be able to describe it. Um, and that was a, an incredible lesson for me. I don't think it necessarily, I mean, I think it did make me a better teacher, but I don't think it's about creating generations of teachers. I think it's about really um, the student being able to wrestle with the material in a brand new way from a, from a, um, a pose of confidence rather than just uh, submission. And so that alone. And then, of course, over the years that I that I spent in the classroom um, with Miss G, um, we just became um, confidants, if you will. Um, she became my confidant. I confided in her. And so, after my father died, um, I really started to spiral out of control. My grades were in the bottom of the of the barrel. Um, I was in trouble with the law. I was constantly high. Um, she 
gently and with great um, trust um, helped me wrestle with my own problems. And that's something that a cl- that in a classroom of 40 kids uh, is going to be harder to find. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the biggest thing that's changed in, in your mind. It's uh, just, it would be harder for a Miss G to reach out to a student like you and and help you along in a, in a, a class that's double the size it was when, when you went. Absolutely. I also think that our, um, and this is one thing that I, that I try to address in the book a lot, I think that our, as much as we applaud teachers on various um, levels and on various occasions, I think that our basic social attitude toward teachers um, is one that is not helping the profession. Um, and I think it comes down to money. So not only are they overworked, so instead of having 20 students five times a week, five times a day in a class, they've got 40 students five times a day in a class. Um, in real dollars, their salaries have dropped. Um, so it's so much so that um, at the moment, something like 63% of all K-12 through teachers have to have a second job just to make ends meet. And 46% of teachers are going to leave the profession after five years because they're burned out. Um, so in part, it's our attitude toward teachers. It's, it's how much do we really value them. And of course, when it comes down to really valuing somebody, it comes down to, to paying them what they're worth. And we simply don't pay teachers enough. And so you, you think those two ideas are connected, the, uh, and you, you, you do think that uh, teachers are ill-regarded. That's, that's, that's what you write. It's uh, in part because of what we pay them, and we tend to see people as what they're worth in terms of dollar figures. Uh, do you think there's oh. other things going on? Um, I just think that it's, uh, that it's a, um, uh, a situation where we think of teachers as somebody now who have to corral our students toward certain test scores and certain accomplishments. Um, and we don't, I don't think, value them anymore. For the softer, quieter, subtler, and in the end, more important things that they can do, which is actually spend time with our kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, you know, many schools' extracurricular activities have been cut back and, and the like. It was important, I read in the book, uh, for you to spend time in smaller groups with Miss G. She would take you on, on trips to, you know, French movies and, and the like. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We would go see French movies, we would go see French restaurants. And, you know, for a kid growing up in San Jose and, you know, in the 1970s, I'd never, you know, seen an espresso machine in my life uh, to, to be eating snails and uh watching Alan Renee films. Um, it's a way of broadening the possibility of one's life. Um, it's a way of pointing toward, toward the larger world rather than just pointing toward the report card or the test score. And so we had a lot of opportunities to do that. Um, she always made sure that we were focused rigorously on the academic side of the education. Um, the conjugations, the, the imperfect, uh, and of course the bane of all French students, the subjunctive. Um, um, but she also made sure that we kept our eyes up and looking out into the world, into the sort of the bigger picture of it. 
Um, I don't even know if those things are possible today. I write in the book about um, one very vivid memory I have of us uh, returning from a, a, a class trip to a French restaurant and uh, Miss G and myself sitting in the car in front, in her car in front of my house, um, just talking for an hour about some problem that was on my mind. Um, I don't even know that that's possible anymore. Certainly a lot of people would, would see it now as something unseemly between student and teacher, which it wasn't at the time. Um, but that sort of luxury of being able to do that, of, ha of her having the time and the energy to do that, of me having the time um, and the space to, to have that quiet and intense mentoring moment um, the more students you pack into the classroom, the more work you pile on the teacher, the less that opportunity is going to show up. We've ta we're talking with Lewis Busby. He is author most recently of Blackboard, A Personal History of the Classroom. Uh, he's author uh, uh, earlier of the well-received book about uh, books and bookshops, The Yellow-Lighted Bookshop, and uh, other books, including uh, books for, uh, for children. Uh, Lewis Busby uh, joins us for the hour, and uh, we're going to continue this conversation following a break, including uh, going to talking about his first and most important of his immodest proposal, first step in that proposal, which is without qualification and immediately have the student population of every classroom, from 40 to 20, from 32 to 16, it doesn't matter, he says. And uh, he also says, controversially, I'm sure in some circles, raise my taxes. We'll talk about that and uh, go back to kindergarten and uh, some other memories from Lewis Busby as uh, he takes his personal tour of the classroom and connects that with the state of education today following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theatre in Logan, presenting The Best of Beethoven, August 6th, Fisher's Symphony, Soloists, and the American Festival Chorus, conducted by Dr. Craig Jessup. Details at utahfestival.org. And Southern Utah University's Office of Regional Services, hosting the Utah Rural Summit, an annual gathering of rural Utah leaders, Thursday and Friday, August 7th and 8th, in the SUU Hunter Conference Center. Details at utahlinks.org. Slash URS. This is Lloyd Berenson, Director of the Bear River Health Department. Knowing the current air quality conditions allows you to better plan your day to protect your health. Keeping up to date on the local air quality is important for everyone, but it is most important for those that are most vulnerable to air pollution, such as children, those with heart or lung disease, and the elderly. The Utah Department of Environmental Quality publishes current air quality for most of the state at airquality.utah.gov. You can also sign up to receive email alerts when there is an air action alert in your county with wood-burning restrictions and recommendations for using alternative transportation. By checking the air quality regularly, you can plan for better health for you and for your family. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. Hi, this is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to help us celebrate the life and music of Frederick Chopin. 
the lyric genius who invented a revolutionary approach to composing for piano. Chopin gave the piano its voice. From Chopin, the piano discovered it could sing. That's Exploring the World of Frederick Chopin, this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for being with us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Lewis Busby. He's author of The Yellow-Lighted Bookshop, After the Gold Rush, and Fliegelman's Desire, as well as three novels for younger readers. His most recent book is Blackboard, A Personal History of the Classroom. It's out from Gray Wolf Press. He's a self-proclaimed average student. After the death of his father, he began to spiral downward, but was saved from failing high school by attentive teachers, teachers who had ample resources thanks to a well-funded California school system. He says things have changed, and uh, he offers a uh, what he calls an immodest proposal. Seven points. We'll get into that. Um, and, Lewis Busby, we have changed the telephones. We had a slight buzz on the other line. Uh, hopefully this works a little better. Okay, great. Can you hear me? I, I can, and the, the buzz is gone, so that, that's good. Okay, super. Um, so uh, I want this to be, as you know, <laughs> controversial. You, you say, in fact, to support these steps that you, uh, that you say could help uh, improve our schools. Number one is the most important, and you say uh, immediately have the student population in every classroom. For example, if you have 40, take it down to 20. That, of course, means hiring many more teachers. And you say you're willing to have your taxes raised immediately, even up to, uh, you know, quote-unquote socialist or Swedish levels. That's, oh, absolutely. That, that's going to be controversial in, in some, some areas. The, the, m- many times voters have spoken, you say this in the book, uh, don't raise my taxes. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, part of the, uh, there, for me, there's no other way of understanding the decline in California public schools from consistently number one in the nation back in the 60s and 70s when I was a student to uh, 48th and 49th now. Keep in mind, this is California, one of the largest economies on the planet, um, <clears throat> one of the most advanced, so to speak, uh, states in the country, and our schools are, are, are foundering at 48th and 49th. Um, and it all comes down to funding. Um, in uh, 1979, the voters of uh, California passed Proposition 13, uh, and which was a property tax um, decline um, and that affected primarily the public schools. And from that moment on, funding has dropped and dropped and dropped per student. It's about half per student of what it used to be. Um, and that's all tax money that was used to be going into the schools that then stayed with the, um, with the uh, citizens. Um, and I'm not sure that that was a good investment. Um, it's, it's a bellwether moment, Proposition 13 in California, because um, it really signals the beginning of a larger um, movement in the United States, which Reagan, of course, is going um, to, to be the head of, which is the American tax revolt. We, you cannot tax us anymore. And since then, um, it has become a national mantra so much so that George H.W. would say, read my lips, no more taxes. And I'm suggesting, no, please raise my taxes because I want better schools for all children um, because I think better schools make a better society. 
Um, and I think that by saving a couple of thousand dollars a year per person on taxes, um, we're creating a society that um, is much more closed in its opportunities to the students coming out of school. You, you say, one of your quotes here, you say this is a bold statement, the public will, quoting you, to fund public education remains pallid, timid, hypocritical. And I suppose hypocritical you're referring to just about every, you know, no politician comes out and says, you know, let's defund education. Um, and, and in fact, as a society, we all say, we, you know, education's important. But you're saying we don't back every, it up with money. Every, every single politician will say, I'm all about education. I want to, you know, and, and, and they hit it hard. And, of course, you know, politicians lie. They'll say things to get elected and then change their minds. But for me, this is a crucial issue, and it's been that way for decades. We say we want better education for our children, and we're not willing to fund it. It's actually a fairly easy thing to fund, and it's a lot cheaper for students than a lot of other tax monies that, that we use. Um, uh, it costs about $40,000 a year, forty dollars to $60,000 a year, to house an inmate in, um, in California prisons. Uh, we spend about seven or $8,000 a year right now per student. Um, and so for me, that hypocrisy um, shows up in those two figures and um, uh, is made really clear. I would much rather pay $15,000 a year per student uh, to keep those forty dollars to $60,000 a year prisoners out of jail so they can have a better life and we can have a better society. It's an interesting um, comparison. But you include in your book um, Nathan Boots, superintendent of public schools, Ithaca, Michigan. He, he made that uh, a similar comparison, right? Absolutely. A, an open letter to yeah. the governor there. Yeah. yeah. Um, because he's saying, look, Look at look at what prisoners get. You know, forty to sixty thousand dollars a year. They get three meals a day. They get internet access. They get libraries. They have exercise time. Um, and he says, "Fine, send my students to prison. That um, you know, we'll let them go home at the end of the day. Sure, so they can be with their parents. But um, they will, um, in some way, sort of get better services. Um, which is he's being facetious, and I'm being facetious, but." Um, facetious to try and make a point that um, I think we have decided that uh, we can uh, allow um, um, the most meager terms for our students um, um, as long as they um, um, reach certain scores. And we've forgotten about how slow and deep and important education is um, and how much time it what do you think about the uh, the trend? You talk about this uh, to, toward uh, focusing a lot of energy and resources on the standardized tests, um, and I could guess that um, you, you you think there's more. You, you talk about uh, play. One of your points on your immodest proposal is ensure plenty of time for each student to stare out the window. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the things that you know I I, I went into this book wanting to understand what happens in a classroom. I really didn't go in with an idea of, of oh, this is, this is what school should be about. I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert, and this, perhaps it makes me a better guide. But I went in trying to want to understand what is, why I felt school was so important to me, and so what exactly happens in a classroom. And the reason I called the book Blackboard is because 
the teachers frequently, at least in our in our imaginations, the teachers frequently standing in front of the blackboard or a whiteboard or a smartboard these days, and is pointing to the lesson on the board. But implicit in that is is the lesson behind the blackboard, which is often to the world. So she's talking about Bolivia, or she's talking about the solar system. And so she's raising our eyes and our aspirations and saying, look, there's this entire world out there. Let's investigate it together. And I think the problem that I have with, um, with, with the focus on test scores uh, and the focus on federally mandated or even state mandated um, standards is that it keeps the students focused on the desk in front of them, on the test in front of them. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. It isn't expansive in the way that education should be. And, and in the end, I think it reduces school education, a sense of who you're going to be in the world, how you're going to go out into the world. I think it reduces it to merely an economic factor. Um, that there was a gentleman running for a congressional seat here in the Bay Area in a primary this last spring whose whole educational platform was good middle-class jobs for students. And I thought, well, yeah, that's good. I like that, too. But I want education to be more than about that. I want it to be about a larger prospect. And it's also viewing education through the prism of, of business and economics, isn't it? That we, we need to do these inputs, we need to be efficient, we need to have these outcomes. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, I write about it in the book, um, you know, picking my daughter up at school and saying, you know, one day to her, how was your day today? And she said, oh, well, I really didn't do very much. She said, I just kind of, there was this storm coming in and I just sort of stared out the window and watched these clouds go by. And I thought, well, that's a valuable day at school. Yes, we need to learn skills, and we do in school. Hmm. Um, we need to learn to be productive, engaged members of society, but that's not just necessarily um, having this particular score on this particular math test. Um, I, I, we, we often hear, and there have been several books in the last few years about how uh, creative and critical thinking um, are so important to the great innovations of our time, I, and, I, and I feel that sometimes that we've cut back on our ability to stare out the window and imagine um, and, and take a break from learning our times tables. Um, I love the times tables. I think we need to have those skills, um, but I want school to be spacious enough um, so that a student doesn't feel like an employee at a corporation. Mm-hmm. I just uh, was, was, in fact, this morning I was hearing a report on uh, NPR about uh, play and, uh, and a study that, you know, the, the schools and the, the nations that have more recess than, than others, uh, you know, have better outcomes. So, I, I, you know, there's some buttressing uh, science there. And also, if, you, if you've ever spent time in a classroom, you know why we have recess. Uh, you you, you got to get the kids out there and running around and get some of the steam out so they can, cause, and so they can play, and mm-hmm. so they can, and, and, and take the, the, those concepts that they're learning in classroom and sort of put them into use, but also so that when they come back into the classroom, they, they're able to focus on the blackboard again and um, not just fidget in their seats. I, I think it's one of the great shames, as much as I hated PE, physical education, 
in high school. Uh, I was never an athletic kid. Um, as much as I hated it, I regret um, so much that uh, today in California, it's about an hour a week, an hour a week of physical education that's required. And when I was a student, it was an hour every day. Um, one of the things about the physical aspect of school is that it's always, and by that I mean physical education, other sorts of physical training, is that it's always been built into school in a way. A lot of historians of education believe that the first schools were actually military academies, that, that learning military discipline in early societies um, was the first kind of training outside of on-the-job training. So in other words, when you learned how to plant corn, you learned it because you were out there planting corn with your, with your family. But when it came to, to the defense of the, of the village, you had to have specialized training. And so military academies um, and the physical aspect of school has always been um, part of schooling, and we're losing that more and more, as well as so many other things that we're losing. What do you think about um, the, the prevalence of computers now? That's, that's one thing that, uh, you know, sometimes you hear politicians and, and citizens push is let's increase the technology. That's going to help to uh, to maybe offset the, the increased class sizes and the other problems we have? Uh, um, I, I, uh, boy, it's a, it's a, it's a, it always stumps me because a classroom is such a simple thing and doesn't require a computer, and yet every classroom I go into has banks of new computers. Um, this, the parents may be out in the parking lot um, having a bake sale to raise 150 bucks to, to get some art supplies, but there's brand new computers. Um, one thing I know about kids is um, when I have a problem with a computer, I go to my daughter mm -hmm. and she tells me how to fix it. Yeah. Um, computers are so much a part of their lives. They have so much innate understanding of them because they've grown up with them. I'm not sure of the value of that. Um, I'm not unsure of the value of it either. Um, I just worry that we spend so much money on computers for our kids in classrooms um, that we might be spending that on more teachers in class. We might be spending that on more adults in the hallways, more adults on the playground. Um, uh, it seems like an easy answer. Um, and, it, and if we all remember there was a time in our lives when computers were going to make everything so much easier, um, and I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. I do know this. You can have a thriving, engaged student without a computer. So I'm just not sure that it's, that it's an answer that's that simple. What about if we take that to the, to the extreme, um, the idea of online education? And I, I've seen that. I've seen commercials for, uh, here in Utah, a uh, charter school, I believe it is, where uh, you know, the child is in, in his or her home and learning yeah. online. Um, what, uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Do we still need people, uh, students especially, uh, young people, in the classroom together? similar systems here in uh, the state of California, uh, funded by the state of California. You can put your child into an online-only class and sort of, sort of a state-controlled homeschool environment. Um, I've taught some online classes uh, writing um, for adults. 
I don't like it. Um, it's, and that may just be my preference. I like face-to-face confrontations with people, and sometimes you know, teaching is about a confrontation, um, and I mean that in the best way. I like to be in the same room. I like to be able to shrug my shoulder and give a little nuance. I like for some silence to set in between us. I love what happens in a classroom when one of my students puts forward an idea, puts it out into the air, and another student reacts to that and brings in some other information, and maybe a third or a fourth will bring in other things, and we build together in this same classroom a much bigger idea um, than we could have done on our own. Um, I'm certain that there are certain skills and certain sets of facts that can be well accessed through online learning, but it's a it's a human activity um, school, and it it requires. I don't think I would have been able to have been pulled out of the mire of my of my teenage existence if I'd done that online, mm-hmm. and I certainly wouldn't have made the great friends that I made in those classrooms. So. In the same way as in Yellow Lighted Bookshop, I want to suggest that while it's handy to buy books online, we still need to get up and get out of the house and go see other people. I would say the same about school, probably more so. We're talking with Lewis Busby. His book is Blackboard, A Personal History of the Classroom. He says uh, he was saved from failing high school by uh, great uh, teachers, mentors. And that the same structure, especially um, size of classrooms, would make it very problematic for him if you were going through uh, high school today. Uh, very interesting musings on uh, classroom. Uh, through the prism of his personal experiences, he goes back in his memory uh, to elementary school, middle school, and uh, high school, also to college, and uh, sees this uh, through the prism of as a parent, through his uh, daughters going into high school now and also as a student and a teacher now. We'll talk more about this following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Anthropology Museum in Old Main, presenting the new exhibit, When I Was a Child, Children and Childhood in Cross-Cultural Perspective, exploring the responsibilities of children in different cultures around the world. Open 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and Crumb Brothers Addison Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and boxed lunches. Information at crumbbrothers.com. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ros Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Another 10 minutes left in the program. Uh, you can join us here on the conversation if you would like uh, by the telephone number 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. My guest for the hour is Lewis Busby. He's author of several books, including the, the bestseller, Yellow Lighted Bookshop. His new book is Blackboard, A Personal History of the Classroom. And he says in the book that the public will to fund public education remains pallid, timid, and hypocritical. Uh, class sizes too large, uh, infrastructure crumbling, uh, excellent uh, teachers leaving the profession. Uh, and he says so what we need is uh, to invest a lot more money. He says, raise my taxes. To, uh, to get that done, especially to reduce class sizes. Um, we'd love to get your perspective at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Lewis Busby, uh, you write in the book that, and I think we forget this, the idea of universal education is pretty recent. Uh, in much of history, it was, you know, if, if you could afford to send your kids to school, your kids got to go to school, otherwise... Uh, you didn't go to school, and, and that problem remains. There's some 72 million people or kids around the world, according to a United Nations report, I believe, uh, don't don't have education. No, absolutely. It's an, it's, it's an appalling number um, to imagine that 72 million children unable to go to school. There are a number of reasons for that. Um, a lot of it's gender discrimination. We've seen this um, in various uh, um, Middle Eastern countries. Uh, um, and uh, elsewhere. Um, some of it is uh, religious. Um, some of it has to do with um, the infrastructure of a particular country. But in the end, uh, the bottom line is poverty. Um, and um, it's poverty that's keeping children from school. So imagine that 72 million people, an entire nation of people unable to go to school. Um, that's a, that, that, I find, is a truly appalling number. I wonder if we can compare and contrast a couple of things that you uh, point out in the book. One is the one-room schoolhouse, this sort of this sure. iconic idea, which is pretty, re- you know, pretty recent. Uh, probably still some one-room schoolhouses out there, whereby the community comes together, right? And and you 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 build the school, you provide the teacher, et cetera, et cetera. So that's uh, sort of one ideal, which. Uh, well, had, which has come to, and I guess we, in larger communities, we, we do that through through community taxes. But on the other hand, you one of your points in your book is abolish bake sales. In your first chapter, you're, you're very distressed by this bake sale that you see going on at your old elementary, Bagby Elementary. Isn't that community-minded as well? Shouldn't, shouldn't parents get together and, and do that kind of thing? No, absolutely. Uh, you know, and it's a wonderful thing when uh, parents band together uh, to try and improve uh, the uh, the conditions of their school. However, a bake, sca- a bake sale at a school isn't going to hire more teachers. A bake sale at a school isn't going... And, it's a, you know, listen, bake sales are fun. You know, we all have fun doing these things. Um, but it's it's not going to um, improve the classroom um, in, in the sort of uh, what I think uh, uh, drastic ways we need to improve it. Um, and, and I find it frustrating that um, that parents have to have bake sales to, like I say, raise 150 or 800 dollars to buy a few new books for the library to get some art supplies because there's no art curriculum. Um, 
part of the thinking behind the Proposition 13 in, in California and the Great Tax Revolt began, part of the moral thinking, and this is, this is set out in their literature, is, listen, I don't have students in school, so I'm not going to pay for, for other kids to go to school, so give me back my tax money. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a self-defeating hypocrisy um, in, in my book. Um, why don't we use the larger community to make a better community? And, mm-hmm. and I think that's my frustration with bake sales. I love it when parents get involved, absolutely, and they do it all the time. Um, I just want it to be for let's have a bake sale to have fun. That was you. You addressed this in in, in part. Uh, maybe you could expand on this. I I wondered. Uh, your daughter has been in private school through her entire career, and including you, you I guess, high school as well now. Um, yeah. You're fighting for the public schools here. And uh, people well, might... you know, we, 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 had to make, we had to make as a family, we had to make one of those difficult choices, which is um, I, would, I was blessed with going to school in paradise, which was, and I'm not advocating that those times are ever going to return. I don't want this to be a book about nostalgia. I want to, I use that because it's my experience, but I want to look forward to, and, and I have no answers, really. I just want people to, 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 to be more uh, engaged, I think, in, in, in what happens in school. Um, but we had to make a decision. We live in San Francisco, which is a beautiful city, and it has a, it has a, a school system that, despite everyone's good intentions, um, suffers under a horribly large bureaucracy um, when woefully lacking funds. Um, and so it was a question of, were we willing to make the sacrifice, which is how we thought of it, of sending our daughter to school and trying to fight the good fight from inside and go to innumerable bake sales? Or did we have to, as parents, opt out to try and, 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 and further our, our daughter's, our only child's education. So I, I agree uh, with any charge of hypocrisy on my part. Um, we did get selfish and say, no, we need to, this is our, our child and we need to send her forward. I, I, for me, it's a, it's a sad comment because I would have loved to have sent my daughter to a San Francisco public school. So, so you would, uh, I would think just this is stereotyping in the San Francisco area, with more more liberal side. That uh, if 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 you could accomplish raising taxes for uh, reducing uh, classroom sizes uh, anywhere, you'd, you'd have to be San Francisco. Is there what's the atmosphere out there? Oh, the atmosphere out here is, is the atmosphere is, is the same everywhere. Which is uh, right now. Um, People, we still haven't gotten to the point where we're saying to our politicians, to the people who control it, no, you, you need to raise my taxes. We need to have more money for these things. Um, it is still the prevailing ethos when it comes to taxation in this country, which is lower my taxes, lower my taxes, lower my taxes. That goes for corporations. That goes for liberal individuals. That goes for conservative individuals. Um, you know, I, I wish I could start a, a, a tax revolt the other way, um, which is, you know, we have shown uh, through economic studies that um, increasing taxes and spending money on public projects 
is actually to the economic good rather than to the detriment. Um, but we have this prevailing ethos, which is fine um, if you know capitalism is going to to run that way. My problem is is that it affects schools, and I think when you affect schools, you affect millions of individuals, and that's going to affect the future of of whatever society you're talking about. We are out of time, uh, and there's much more in the book. Um, some some. Uh, fond memories and uh, a lot of interesting history. The history of kindergarten, for example, architecture and the arrangement of, of classrooms. The book is Blackboard, A Personal History of the Classroom. The author is Lewis Busby. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you so much. I hope you guys have a good morning out there. Uh, yes, yes, and you, you as well. Okay. Uh, coming up to tomorrow, we'll uh, revisit a program uh, from in March where we talk about uh, the future of coal how much coal is needed, and uh, should we? how can we get away from coal? Uh, Utah is especially dependent on coal for production of electricity. On Friday, Sherry Quinn is in, and on Monday, we'll have some uh, interviews that I'll be doing tomorrow uh, from the Utah Rural Summit. Uh, for uh, producer Christian Rodriguez, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Richard Ratliff. In my last commentary, I said that a person or organization with a healthy relationship portfolio not only has healthier relationships, but also more of them than those with unhealthy relationships. Why is this true? The economic principle is basic. Better relationships reward those involved with more resources to make new ones. Bad relationships are a painful drain. There is another powerful principle at work here. If I cultivate a good relationship with someone, I also improve my relationships with that person's friends. It is exponential. A few years ago, a friend and I had the opportunity to interview several small business owners in northern Utah whose businesses had been successful in a very competitive market against much larger big box stores. All of these successful business people credited their success with sustained good relationships over a long time. The emphasis was on the relationship, not winning the deal. People look out for one another in good relationships and both benefit. These small business managers knew they had to perform better than their larger competitors. They had to be more competent, more dependable, with impeccable integrity, and to really care about the welfare of their customers. They knew that cultivating a good relationship with one customer probably meant more good customers from that one's friends. What is more, their reputation for competence, integrity, and dependability prompted the big boxes to employ some of these small local companies to service the big box sales. Their large competitors became their customers. Success was in the numbers. More good relationships meant more good friends and more money in the till. Their success, they said, was also due to good relationships with suppliers, who enable them to offer products of equal or better quality than their competition at comparable prices. These business owners treated relationships with their employees with the same care and importance. Employee turnover was rare, and work tenures of 20 to 30 years were typical. Speaking of big boxes, I recently saw in Walmart's and Kmart's financial statements that Walmart's average relationship costs are significantly less than Kmart's. Is it any surprise that Walmart 
has more customers. The principle is not just true in business. I recently heard a political analyst argue that the most effective politicians are mayors. Mayors look their constituents directly in the eye every day. They deal with their problems and help them realize their dreams right here, right now. They personally witness and share their sorrows and joys. A mayor is forced by the nature of his office to build a lot of close relationships directly with the organizations and people of the community. Mayors speak of us and our. National politicians seem to say I and my a lot. I attended a political meeting recently where there was a lot of political flag-waving and prepping for battles. I heard little about the good of the people, community, and striking a workable, cooperative balance in a sea of diverse needs, interests, and preferences, things for which democracy is particularly well-suited. Relationship economics suggests that working together is more likely to result in our mutual good and happiness at less cost than working against each other. People everywhere are desperate for a healing voice, a healing strategy for all of us, leaders who understand goodwill, leaders who can look the people and each other in the eye and say, let's do something good. If we can stop trying to push each other around, perhaps we will find new friends and fewer enemies. Success is a relationship game, not a power game. Mr. Putin, are you listening? Washington, are you listening? Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you so much for listening to Access Utah today. Um, coming up next is uh, Live It on Earth. At the time now is uh, 10 a.m.